a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 20, 22 verses of uh, this narrative. Occasionally in the news, you'll, you'll see some story, really irritating story, where someone comes to the rescue of another person in trouble only to be sued by the person that tried to do the rescuing. You ever see one of these stories? And you probably think like I do, how is it possible, how absurd can you be to try to, you know, condemn a good act, right? Or, to, you know, to bring punishment to someone who's done something kind. Well, that's sort of exactly what we got going on in chapter 4 of our narrative today. If you were here last week, remember chapter 3, Peter and John, day in the life of the apostles on their way to the temple to pray, see a crippled man, 40-year-old crippled man, been crippled his whole life, and he's begging for coin only to have Peter say to him, I don't have money, but what I have I'll give to you, rise and walk, and the man does. So here we are now in chapter 4, and Peter and John are imprisoned by the leaders of Israel for a good deed. So it should confuse you if you're normal in your own conscience, but uh, pretty straightforward narrative, but I think there's some fairly significant lessons, one, maybe to be reminded of, two, to be confronted by, to be honest with you. So let, let's just get into it. If you like to take notes, here's the first lesson in this narrative. There's always opposition to Jesus. Let's read the first seven verses and see what happens to Peter and John. And as they were speaking to the people and priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, the John, the Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? I want to take some time. It might seem like a little bit too much time, but I think it's important because um, we're going to experience these leaders throughout our next 30-some weeks of Acts. I want to look at this group of the Sanhedrin, specifically the Sadducees, who look particularly annoyed in verse 1 with Peter and John, and just describe kind of where they're coming from so we know where this tension. I mean, this is the very first persecution of the church. This is the very beginning of what becomes now a long line of people hating Jesus in us, so we, we want to understand where it's coming from. The group of leaders that have gathered here to question Peter and John on this particular day are the, the Sanhedrin. This is the highest ruling body in, in Jerusalem, okay? And it's made up of 70 leaders plus the high priest. And in this group of people, there are three groups and two parties plus the high priest that represent that 70. The three groups are mentioned here, the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. Um, the rulers were simply the chief priests of the temple. They were responsible for worship, the purity of worship in the temple, and the sacrificial, sacrificial systems and things like that. The, the elders were the tribal heads of every nation, represented here with the leadership, as well as the scribes who were experts of the law and the oral traditions. In fact, they would make interpretations of the law and then apply that to people's daily living. This is how you live this out, okay? Um, the two religious parties represented in this group of leaders of the Sanhedrin were people you're probably familiar with. The Pharisees, we all know those guys, and the Sadducees. And yet here in verse 1, the Sadducees are called out as the ones who are particularly annoyed with what's taken place in the preaching of the resurrection from the dead. And we want to get to that in just a second. But let me just remind you who the Pharisees are. 
These men kind of work in concert with the scribes, preserving the law at all costs. To the minutia of detail, these guys were interested in every detail, all right? They hated foreign occupation. They were having a problem with Rome there, obviously. They believed in spiritual realm. They accepted the idea of the resurrection. They waited for the coming of the Messiah, although the conditions and the parameters around the coming were very particular to them and up to their presuppositions. Most of them came from the trade class, and they were legalists to the 10th power. So if you picture in your mind that, you've got kind of an idea of these Pharisees, these people who were uh, religiously involved. The Sadducees, on on, on the other hand, they're, they're the aristocracy. They, uh, they owned most of the land and had most of the power. And they loved it that way. They uh, collaborated with the foreign conquerors as a way to maintain their position of wealth and power. And so they worked hand in hand with the people everybody hated. So you can imagine how the people felt about the Sadducees. They wanted peace at all costs because they didn't want anything to upset the powers that be. Because the power that be gives them their powers. Make sense? Um, Theologically speaking, they're at odds with with the Pharisees on most things that you would encounter. For instance, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed in no life after death. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm, uh, no angels, no demons. They didn't look forward to the coming of the Messiah whatsoever. And here's the key to understanding the tension specifically as it relates to the Sadducees here and the problem that they have with the disciples. To the Sadducee, talk of of the resurrection and revolution were synonymous in their minds. For them, resurrection meant we lose what we've got. We lose our money. We lose our power, okay? So they were very, very interested in, in squelching the whole idea of risen anything, specifically risen Jesus, and a powered, empowered people now representing him. So, so let me just give you a little bit more on these leaders mentioned here. Annas and, and Caiaphas, uh, Annas we're probably familiar with. He was the one who tried Jesus first and sent him off to Pilate. We're familiar with this man. But here's what's behind their tension. The resurrection threatened their gig. It's as simple as you can put it. And they wanted no, no part of it. Here is Annas described here. He was the power in Jerusalem. He had had a, a lineage of power. Five sons served at high priest. Now Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is serving in that role. So he's been used to having it his way. But what's interesting about this role of high priest, prior to the Roman occupation, the role of high priest was a lifelong role kind of like our Supreme Court judge. You got the job, it was your job until you're gone. When the Romans came in, they changed out the leadership every year. And what they did do was was they uh, offered this role to the highest bidder. Are you tracking so far? And so this this Annas and Caiaphas and the whole family of, of higher priests had so much wealth that they paid their way into sustained leadership. They had a dynasty. They're the Kennedys of Jerusalem, okay? It was kind of their world and nobody else's world. And the way they amassed their wealth is what troubles the people of of Israel because they owned the temple sacrifice system. They, They would sell these pure animals for sacrifice to the Jewish people at exorbitant prices, ridiculous fees. And if you showed up with what you consider to be an acceptable sacrifice, he also controlled all of the assessors of sacrifices, and they just came to the conclusion, yours isn't pure enough. Oh, you're good day. We have one for you at an exceptional price. And they got filthy rich 
on the backs of the sacrificial system to God. And they were hated by the people in Israel. Nobody could stand these guys because they owned, they owned the world there. They were the richest, most wealthiest, most unspiritual, dominant people in the land, okay? And they were hated there. Um, the, the popularity of Jesus, as you go back to the Gospels, he was a problem for them too. Beyond what he said and how he lived. Now, those were issues for, for everybody. Specifically, when you see the Gospels, you see the Pharisees reacting to his declaration that he's God and his, I guess, disinterest in some of the minutia of law that they lived by. But here's the reality. The Sadducees went nuts when he came into the temple and threw over the tables and said, this is not worship. And the tables were their way of life. You understand? To the Sadducee, everything that they had structured in the temple system kept them in power and kept them rich. And the dynasty had to continue. So the Sadducees, these leaders, were seriously at odds with Jesus, not just, not particularly for his teaching, but for that he threatened their way of life, their comfort, their control. So just imagine if you're a Sadducee, you had to go to huge lengths, expend a ton of energy to get rid of Jesus. And you march him up through trial and he's convicted and he goes to the cross and he dies and they're probably sitting around going, we've got it, we made it. Only to hear a few days later, talk of resurrection. So what do they do? They broadcast a rumor that no, somebody stole the body, let it go away, it'll die down. Only to have Peter and John show up two months later and a crippled man, crippled for 40 days, walks with no explanation other than Jesus. Uh-oh, the resurrection is here again, and it's threatening their, their gig. Revolution, resurrection, it all is the same to them. And so they're particularly upset. Do you understand with what's going on here and why, why this persecution will begin? Now, remember the first lesson here in this text. There is always opposition to Jesus. And it's easy to look at the Sadducees from their perspective and their values and go, wow, those guys are bad dudes, man. That's probably a problem. But I would suggest to you, maybe I should ask you, are there any Sadducees in the house today? You want my answer? In every seat. I don't want to offend you because I'm, just pretend I'm sitting in one too. I'm a Sadducee. My flesh wants to be a Sadducee. And here's why, because here's my definition. A Sadducee is upset anytime Jesus threatens something we love. How many times did that happen to you this week? Happens to all of us. Let me ask you this question. When, when was the last time Jesus threatened you or bothered you? Can you remember precisely? You, you might be here this morning, and more than likely there's several of you here who would, by your own admission, say, I don't follow Jesus. I mean, I'm not mad at him or anything. I'm just neutral. I'm indifferent. I see Jesus as a historical character, probably has some offerings of wise input into a life, but God, I haven't bought into that. I don't buy into Savior. I don't perceive my need to need that. That's kind of a crutch. You might, by your own admission, say, he doesn't bother me. Well, I will challenge that, and I'll bet he does. Because Jesus throws down some seriously significant statements about who he is and what he says about us. And my guess is it threatens you. When he says, I am the way, specific, I am the truth and the life, he's saying that everything else you think about in value, 
is wrong compared to him. He says, in essence, paraphrase, you don't know what you're doing. That's offensive. Wouldn't you agree? When you hear that Jesus requires all of your life, that upsets you because it's too much to give. That's too radical. I don't want to give up my whole life. I would rather do what everybody else does and simply tag him on somewhere, like keep my life and add him. Fire insurance, maybe? That'd be good. Do what I want to do and not have to pay for it. That's awesome. You perceive Jesus as a way harder life than you'd ever want. So there's no way lining up to his commands would be an interest to you. When you hear Jesus say to you, walk in obedience to all that I've commanded you, that upsets you, and I don't want to be offensive, but it, it offends us. It offends our rebel's heart because it doesn't have an appetite for those things. Because I'm inclined to war with God. I want to be God. I want to be in control. I want to decide what's right and wrong. When he makes that decision for me, it offends me. When you hear Jesus' assessment of our life as pointless, almost like the proverbial writer that says it's like chasing after the wind, that bothers me because it's assessed my life as just a waste of time. It looks at my values and my efforts and says, no, you're just, you're just like going after the wind right there. When he says you're a sinner, to such a degree, there's nothing you can do. That offends you because in your instincts, you say, I'm a good person. I look around me. I'm not them. I've never done that. I've never been there. And you say, because those things aren't in your life, that you're a good enough person for that statement about you being a sinner to be wrong. And so Jesus offends you. Those statements are too absolute. They're too specific. And so it bothers us. Here's what else I know. A lot of believers in here, a lot of Christians, of people who have decided that Jesus is who he says he is. He is your Lord and Savior, that he went to the cross to die for your sins. But I would suggest to you that we all are a little bit of a Sadducee. Because remember the definition, whenever he threatens something you love. This is where the tension comes in because most of us aren't really good assessors of ourselves. But I'm going to ask you to think about it. When Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourself, and what you and I do is quickly form a list of who my neighbor isn't to avoid what that might mean. I can love my neighbor, the likable people. When Jesus says even more intensely than that, I want you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Well, we just call that absurd. They don't think like me. They don't act like me. They don't talk like me. They don't vote like me. They don't live where I do. They don't see from my side of the street. Write them off. Well, that's not at all what Jesus says to the church. Love your enemy is what he says. When he says don't store up your treasures here on earth, but invest in the kingdom, that's easy to write off too. Ignore it because, God, I'm doing good things with your riches. I'm, I'm taking care of my family. I'm providing for my future. That's why I don't invest in your kingdom. I'm busy doing good things. This is where Jesus comes after the Sadducee heart in all of us. Because he's coming after the stuff we love. He threatens it. When Jesus ties on a slave apron and gets down in the mud and washes his feet and says, hey, follow me. Do what I do. And we're quick to make a list of reasons why that doesn't apply to me. My age, I'm too old. 
to serve like that. I'm too young to serve like that. My status is too high for something like that. I don't want to be that. That's not what I'm called to. Isn't there a department for servants that wash feet? Don't feet washing people, isn't that a gift? Don't they show up somewhere in a department? Don't we plug them in somewhere? No. Jesus says, be like me, the king of glory. Get on your knees and serve the least of these. That's what he says. It's offensive. I have to confess it is because he's coming after things we love. When Jesus says to forgive one another in radical ways, and I'm more prone to make files of lists of offenses people have committed against me versus letting it go? You get my point, don't you? You get the point, I hope. This isn't just a story about the Sadducees persecuting the church because Jesus offended them. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also an absolute truth, and it's always true. There's always opposition to Jesus, even in every seat in this room. I guess the question we should answer is, how are you opposing him? I don't know. I have no idea. But right now, the Holy Spirit in his power is in this room. And he's taking simple words from a simple dude and he's applying it to your heart. And he's saying to you, it's there. It's in you. You're thinking those thoughts and you're doing those actions. I'm talking to you. And I'm just suggesting if the Holy Spirit does what he always promises to do, and he is here, and he's preaching this sermon to your heart, this isn't complicated. Let's start by admitting it. That's the word confession. Just admit that it's there and then repent. We talked about repentance last week, right? Don't just turn away from the bad thing. Turn to the good thing, who is God, right? Repent of that sin. Just do those things. Let's move on. There is another lesson in this text for us. Jesus is always offensive, but there's salvation only in Jesus, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's good news, but to be fair, this is where all the visceral reactions against Jesus come from. The exclusivity of that statement. The absolute, no room for anything else statement. No one else, no other name. It is what we call a universal negative. It's a statement that allows for no exceptions. We live in a world of super tolerance, don't we? Don't we? This is the most intolerant thing you could possibly say. I know you're sincere. You're just dead wrong. How'd that feel? Tell the world that. Tell your heart that. That every other pursuit, every other affection, every other direction, every other religion is dead wrong other than Jesus crucified and risen again. Everything else is wrong. That's why everyone's up in arms against Jesus. That statement, verse 12. So before we get offended, maybe we should stop for a second, be wise to ask the question. Why? Why is Jesus the only way? You might not like the answer, but at least let's try the question, okay? Let me give you a couple options. Jesus is the only way to salvation because he's the only one qualified to deal with our sin problem. 
That's, that's answer number one. We, we need someone who is fully man who can understand what we're dealing with, don't we? we? We need someone who understands the temptation and yet without his own failures in those temptations. We need somebody like that. We need someone who is human without sin. Someone who doesn't have debt of their own. For this sacrifice for, for sin to be sufficient for all who would believe then we would need someone whose life was valuable enough to cover all, right? Jesus is the answer. The scriptures describe him as the creator, sustainer of the universe, God, who always was come in human flesh. Fully man, fully God. His perfect life, according to the scriptures, is the perfect ransom payment for my sin and your sin if you trust in Christ. It's good enough, more than good enough. Why is Jesus the only way? Because Jesus is the only one to overcome the grave ever. The resurrection is key to this. Lots have claimed throughout history to be a savior. Jesus is the only one that proved it by the resurrection. He rose from the grave. It proves that who he was was true and what he said was true. The resurrection is what the world wants to just kind of write off, make it go away. Sadducees, make it go away. It can't be true because resurrection means authority. Resurrection means power. It means truth. If he rose from the dead, I got to deal with it. But if he didn't, we're okay. Make sense? Crucified men aren't a threat to anybody. They're just dead men without power and authority. But resurrection changes everything. Agreed? Here's why salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. Because you and I can make the mistake of thinking that our problem with sin is a problem that we can work on. Small problem. Little issue. Little time. Good, hearty elbow grease. We can fix it. No, you can't. The problem that we have doesn't require just a little surgery. It requires a resurrection. You sang it. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. We need life because the scriptures say we're dead in our sins. We need to come alive, not just be adjusted. That's the reality of the scriptures. The problem doesn't just need addressing. It needs righteousness. I need a covering of Jesus so when God sees me, he doesn't see me for all my failures and inclinations. He sees the righteous robes of Christ over me and for me and to me. That's the reality of the gospel. It's good news because he did it all, right? Our problem doesn't just need God to be appeased and settled down. It needs God's wrath to be satisfied. You and I have sin, and it, the Bible says if you sin, you die. There is a stacking up of punishment for sin, and God is right and good to do that. He wouldn't be a good God if he didn't punish sin. So God isn't just going to look the other way and say, never mind regarding our sin. He takes all of his righteous, holy, stored up, eternal wrath, and he points it at his son, and he pours it out. Every drop of it, Jesus drank. Every drop of all the punishment I deserved and you deserved, he did. Our sin problem is huge. I can't even use English to describe it. It's bigger than that. But it's so big that God left heaven to pay for it. That's the reality of this gospel. So it comes down to two things that Jesus has said before. There is a broad way. The broad way leads to destruction, by the way. And here's what it says on the Broadway sign. 
be good and sincere leads to destruction. The narrow way says, you can't, so rest in Jesus. Welcome. That's me. I can't. Tried, can't do it. But rest in Christ and what he's done, and we can. We need to move on. So we've seen so far the opposition to Jesus, and we've seen now Peter and John's explanation of the exclusivity of Jesus. Now here's the other lesson in our story. Uh, there's only power through Jesus. Verses 13 through 16. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed, healed beside them, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. The Sanhedrin were used to control. Specifically, the Sadducees used to control and power over others. They had position. They had education. They were anything but common. And what was most startling to them at this moment was these men who were considered common and uneducated, average people at best, were not just keeping up. were overcoming them and their questions. This is an interesting thing. Verse 13 tells us how they did it because they realized the difference was Jesus. They had been with Jesus. That's why they're overcoming these questions. That's why they're standing their ground in boldness. That's why this is happening. Now, I don't know what you think about your own life. If we just use that phrase, common and educated men. But my assumption is, if you added a couple more adjectives on there, that there's a lot of reasons why people in this room have decided that you have to sit this one out. Like your involvement in the kingdom of God, your, your influence in the kingdom of God, your participation needs to kind of go on the back burner because you're too ordinary and too common. Those, those people do that, not people like me. I want to reinforce in your mind that God has a cute little way, fun little way of using mostly the common and uneducated in what he does through the amazing works in the world. Uh, just to remind you a few of the narratives of people that we celebrate. You remember Abraham? He was an idol worshiper. It's where God found him and pointed him right towards Yahweh alone. Moses, a murderer, and when God got a hold of him, he said, I, I can't speak. Here, lead three million people. Rahab was a prostitute. God used her. David, a boy, just a teenager, just a young boy. Mary was also a teenager. The disciples, we know, we've been through the story. Average guys. Maybe in their society, a little below average. So common. Fishermen. No skill whatsoever. And here they are standing against the elite of the elite given an argument and a defense with boldness that startled the educated. I, I just simply want to use this to remind you of a truth. I know God used them in mighty ways, but he can use you too. But the elders, I, we do this often, and uh, I do it a lot. I pray for who's next. I always pray for who's next. Who's going who's gonna to arrive? Who's going to lead? Who's going to do what? 
There needs to be transition. There needs to be growth. There needs to be added to our number. And I'm convinced that some of you look at your life and say, yeah, it's not me because I'm too common. I want you to know that God used them in mighty ways he can use you too and that God can use people who make mistakes. In fact, let me just add to the truth of that statement. The only people God uses are people who make mistakes because we all, that's right. He loves to use people that have already been written off by others. But there are a few prerequisites, so let me give them to you. You have to be willing. You have to be available. And then you have to do verse 13. You have to be with Jesus. Jesus made the difference with common, ordinary men. He did. What made these men as bold as they were, what changed their lips to speak as they did, being with Jesus. So I suppose we need to remember this, and this is powerful, and it's always true, right? Power comes from proximity. Be with Jesus. Read about Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Worship Jesus, because power only comes through that proximity to him. So I suppose we should ask another question, one that convicts me when I ask it, would be this. Would people recognize that we were ever with Jesus? Would they look at your life and go, man, there's something different about him. I mean, he's not been there and done that, but when he speaks, it's loving, and it's kind, and it's wise. What makes the difference? Do they see our care and affection for the hurting and the suffering around us? Do they sense our smallness and humility, knowing that Jesus is the only reason we can look up? Those are questions we should answer. So we've learned these lessons. There's always opposition to Jesus. There's salvation only in Jesus. There's power only through Jesus. Here's the last lesson. There's no other option but Jesus. Verses 16 through 22. Again, the Sanhedrin saying, what shall we do with these men for that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak for, of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened for the men of on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, i.e. the miracle was undeniable. Nobody could argue with it. No other option but Jesus. In, in verse seven, you don't have to turn back to that, but the leaders asked Peter and John an interesting question. By what name did you heal this man? Okay? Um, let me rephrase the question so we understand what they're asking. Or better said, don't misunderstand what they're asking. They're asking this question. Where did you get the power and authority to do what you did? It's the, it's the way they would phrase things in that day. For instance, if Caesar was who you represented, you would say, I come in the name of Caesar, which says to the people listening to you that all the authority and all the power that Caesar carries, I represent. So when they're saying to these apostles, who did this work? Is it Jesus, they say, and here's the reality of it. We're representing him. That's who we are. We're representing all that he is. And the command is pretty simple. They look at Peter and John after questioning them and said, oh, here's what we want you to do. 
Stop representing Jesus. Just stop it. That's what they wanted. Peter's response is the boldest response in all this text. In fact, it was pretty intense. This is a paraphrase, okay? We're going to obey God, not you. That's how this is going to go down. Uh, I uh, wrestled on Thursday with contextualizing this event for us in 2017. And my, my observation, as it probably is yours, there is radical division in our world. Would you agree? Like to a level of brokenness, I can't remember. Um, but here's the one that really bugs me. It's in the church over the same things. I had conversations on Wednesday and on Tuesday, long ones with pastors and other people who teach the word, talking about the divisions that have now creeped in or crept into the church. And what we're arguing about, it seems to me, is, is about policies and politics and laws and this and that and what's legal and what's not. And, and I wasn't going to say anything. Somebody in the first hour suggested it. Maybe I'll just touch on it and you get mad at me later. But, but where you're showing this isn't in conversations personally. You, you write it on your social feeds of opinions or thoughts and angles and directions. I don't even care because I don't have them and I don't read them. But the sharpest rebuke that the apostle Paul ever had towards the church and Christians in the church was division. And he called it foolish arguments. And he talked about how to respond to foolish arguments and divisions within the church. And he said, listen, avoid people like that. Warn them once, warn them twice. Avoid it. Avoid the divisions. Now, I'm not in the business of trying to decide what policies you get all ramped up about or which ones I should be ramped about. That's not my point. I'm clear in what Jesus has called the church to be. And I'd rather, I'd rather have people say, we don't like Jesus in you versus people not like the policies we support based on our position and our opinion, which I don't care. So let me give you a simple grid to think through whenever you're dealing with the commands of the authorities that be, our world, and the commands of God. You and I, Christian, have a God-given obligation to respect, honor, and obey all the laws and all the authorities of the land. Respect, I'm going to use these words again because we're not doing this. Respect, honor, and obey all the authorities of the land. You have to look at Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 or Titus 3. It's clear. That's what it says, okay? But here's the condition. Until they're at odds with our God-given mission. That's the condition. And I'm just, so I don't just assume you know what I'm talking about, let me give you our God-given mission. Our God-given mission is to make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of Jesus and teaching them to obey all that he commanded. That's our God-given mission. Our God-given mission is to be the hands and feet of Christ, to go to the least of these, to be hospitable to the stranger. That's a God-given mission. It's not a policy. It's not an election. It's what the church of Christ does. It is the mandate, the mission to be salt and light, to influence and flavor and care for and shine in a world that's totally out of control and lost as a broken compass. You know this, right? The mission of the church is to be all those things that Christ was for us. So Peter and John look at the Sanhedrin 
And they say, hey, listen, just stop representing him. And they said, sorry, we can't. We're going to obey God. Church, I don't know how to make it clearer. Don't divide over foolish arguments. Go on mission. Do Jesus in the world. If you just did that, you wouldn't have time to exercise yourself about other things. Just love who God called you to love, which includes neighbor and enemy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's his call. Be respectful of authority. Submit to authority always until they take issue with your God-given calling. Then always fulfill your mission. Now, I'm watching some of you squirm. Okay, I'm cool with that. Then let's pray. And I want to pray one specific thing. That our hearts would care about more about what God cares about than what we care about. If we did that, some of this stuff would clear up for us. Would you agree? Let's pray. Lord, help us to be like Jesus. God, help us focus on the huge task of loving the world with the gospel and caring for needs and being like Christ. Soften our hearts so that we don't make our position as the dividing issue. God, there's diversity in this place. That's good. We don't have to agree on everything. That's okay. But there is an absolute, absolute description of our mission. Help us live it. Help us love it. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. And for his glory we pray. Amen.